All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. We're in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 70, 19. I met with a guy this week, and last week I did chapter 3, 1 to 16, and he thought I was just going to skip 17 to 19. Um, it was upsetting to him, and so I'm not. We're going to do it. These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. <clears throat> I read this week, it is necessary in this world that the faithful should, Christians should, as to outward things, your life, circumstances, be miserable. At one time exposed to lacking something, at another subject to dangers, at one time exposed to reproaches and, and, and other troubles, at another harassed by losses. So he's saying it's necessary for those things to happen to you. And then he, he, he asked the question, why so? Because there would be no occasion for exercising hope were our salvation complete in this world. This is the very thing which the prophet Habakkuk now teaches us when he declares that it is good for us to learn in silence to wait for the salvation of God. So that's Habakkuk in a nutshell. Another way to get at it is, we have all of these, what I'll call victory verses in the Bible. The kind that you like to memorize that are on calendars, especially this time of year. You get to April, there's usually a really nice vo uh, verse about God. Eight, Romans 8, 37. We are more than conquerors. Those are victory verses. We, 1 Corinthians 15, 15. We have victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then... Maybe the most oft-repeated one, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Victory verses. And if you're careful, those verses are all situated in context of written to Christians who are suffering, who are in trouble, who are in danger of losing hope, who don't know where to turn. And in the midst of it, more than conquerors, victory through Christ Jesus, I can do all things. So we take these verses which are good and sweet and full of strength, and they're meant to be lived by you in your sorrows and sufferings and losses and griefs to teach you to hope in the fulfilling of God's salvation. Well, we're in such a text this morning. How can I rejoice in the Lord, take joy in the God of my salvation in utter desolation? And so how can you patiently endure trouble by seeking God? We may hence gather a most useful doctrine, doctrine that whenever signs of God's wrath meet us in outward things, this remedy remains to us, to consider what God is to us inwardly. For our inward joy, which faith brings to us, can overcome all fears, terrors, sorrows, and anxieties. We must notice what follows, verse 17, the God of my salvation. 
For sorrow would soon absorb all of our thoughts, except this, that God is present to preserve you. And so that's what I want to try to convey to you, that if you seek God, you'll find him when you seek him with all your heart. And that is particularly true when you're in times of great difficulty. Let's read these verses. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the field no yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray. Father, your word is wonderful. And so please teach even now our souls to keep them. Keep me steady. Keep us steady according to your promises. Let no sin get dominion over us. May our eyes shed streams of tears because so many do not keep your law, but make your face to shine upon us who do. In Jesus' name, amen. A quick reminder again, this letter is written by a prophet named Habakkuk. We know nothing of him other than his name and that he was a prophet. Uh, Sometime about just before Babylon became the dominating world power, defeats Assyria, and then conquers and deports Judah. And so we're um, 610 to 580 or so. The center of this book, if you remember, it's set up where the first part corresponds to the last part, the second part corresponds to the second to the last part, and then you get right to the center. And if you follow that pattern, the center is 2-4. Behold, his soul is puffed up, but is not up with him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And so God has revealed to Habakkuk that the center of a believer's life is faith in God. That to live, we live by faith. This is all something you've heard before. And yet, in the midst of God promising judgment on his people, devastation from Babylon, an utterly awful nation, the only way, and this at time, is faith. Have faith in God for it. And this isn't a trite saying. This isn't a Sunday school answer. This is white-knuckling, gut-wrenching. I am going to put my hope in God, though there's nothing that my eyes see that would cause me to put my hope in God. I need faith for this day. That's what God is saying to Habakkuk. You need faith for this coming day, Habakkuk. You need to fight and claw, cry out for faith to endure this awful day that's coming. And that center of the book, we see an example of in 17 and 19. This is what it looks like. If you want a further definition of what the faith that we're called to in 2-4, it looks like it's 3, 17 to 19. In 17 to 19 of chapter 3, Habakkuk has been brought to a place of expressing his faith, of living by faith. And in three verses, we see it. Verse 17 is desolation. There's nothing left. 
It's a war-ravaged, denuded future that Habakkuk is looking in the face. In the midst of this desolation, Habakkuk will take joy in the Lord. So you have desolation, you have joy. And then in verse 19, it's joy in the God who lifts us up, who is our strength, who brings us over rocky, difficult terrain to the top. So you have desolation, you have joy in the Lord who is our strength. So verse 17, desolation. Um, Maybe you've watched Saving Private Ryan or a movie of war where they walk through a town or a city and there's just nothing left. None of the streets are passable because it's all rubble. No buildings are left standing. Maybe half of a wall here. It's just gone. There's nothing. That's what God is promising to bring to Habakkuk. There's a desolation. The Babylonians have taken it all. Every economy is built on agriculture. If you don't have crops and you don't have animals, you have nothing. You have no economy, no food, no means to trade or buy and sell. It's all gone. That's verse 17. There's no crops and there's no cattle. This isn't hyperbole. This is reality said poetically. It's a world-class disaster. And if you have any kind of a heart, you might have some consideration and sympathy for what that will do to people. You and I have never known this. We've not even ever come close to it. The kind of starvation that one would have. We've, um, I have, and a few of our children started watching a show called Alone. And it's where 10 men sign up to be dropped in the middle of a complete wilderness area with basically nothing alone. And the last one to survive wins some money. And at one point, one of the guys is really struggling, can't get water, can't start a fire. They're on Vancouver Island and it's rainforest and 35 degrees, just can't start a fire. And he has this idea that he's failing and he thinks, he says to the camera, what if I had my wife and kids here? What if I not only had to just provide for myself and try to exist myself, what if I had to provide for my wife and kids? He's got no food, he's got no water, he's got no warmth, and there's bears and cougars and um, wolves and that thought hits him that the that his wife and children's lives would be in jeopardy. That, that's this. Habakkuk is saying, verse seventeen, he believes what God has said in chapter two, verses sixteen to twenty. I mean, uh, excuse me, chapter one, verses five to eleven, that Babylon is coming and that they're going to destroy. So, verse seventeen functions as a as something of a warning. As 
Habakkuk having the faith to believe what God is going to do, of having the faith to imagine it, to, and this is something we don't want to do often, we don't want to let our minds go to picture what this is going to be like. Habakkuk does it. And this is a, a fatherly, God, God's fatherly and severe judgment coming. And this functions, verse 17, to help Habakkuk and those that Habakkuk loves prepare spiritually for the judgment that's about to come. I think we've been being taught this lesson. What we, I think, agree, I had a throne up there for a reason. Who's in charge of everything that happens on this earth? God, right? He doesn't just merely permit things, although he does permit. He does all things. He works all things. And we would include COVID in that, right? Wasn't it humbling? Did the thought pass through your mind of how quickly God could rise to our knees? It didn't take much, did it? Of how quickly our nation, which is historically one of the most powerful, wealthy, productive societies in, in all of history could just be brought to its knees the whole world instantly. And, and just by the threat of something. I'm not saying COVID wasn't a thing, but early on, a year ago at this time, it was just the threat of something. Isn't that humbling? Isn't that something of God warning us this wasn't actually the plague, although it was a plague. We, we didn't actually have millions of dead bodies as has been seen in the history of the world. But wasn't that a warning of how easily God can bring judgment? Or maybe the summer riots. How quickly chaos can envelop entire cities. And that the governing authorities are basically powerless to do anything about it. Isn't that a warning? For what purpose? We'll get there in a moment, but that's what we should be asking ourselves. Did we, can we respond in humility here? Can we look at the times, see the storm clouds gathering? What do you do every year about October or November? You clean gutters, you... Make sure that the snowblower is running. Put the snow tires on. You get ready for winter. Why? Well, because it's a difficult season. It takes preparing. What Habakkuk is doing with verse 17 is having the faith to see God's judgment coming in order to motivate his preparation his soul preparation, his spiritual preparation. Habakkuk, as a, himself and as a pastor for his people, is using verse 17 in song form in order to 
help them see what's coming that they might prepare themselves spiritually now. So he doesn't deny reality. He uh, poetically imagines it. He has the faith to see that God's judgment is going to bring desolation. No food, no animals, no economy. Like there literally is nowhere to get your next meal. And this is used by Habakkuk being this honest, seeing reality in the face to prepare himself. And I, I don't know, I'm not a prophet or the son of the prophet. I'm a son of an electrician and he was not prophetic in the least. But I don't think it's hard to see that our culture is in trouble and that Christians, as has always been in the history of the world, are sometimes always the first to suffer for that trouble because we refuse to worship the gods of the age. And if we don't worship the gods of the age, then the gods will get mad and we get persecuted. And Christians will refuse to worship the gods of the age, the gods of secularism, of pluralism, of sexual deviancy, of love of money above all else. We refuse to worship these gods. And so how do you prepare yourself? Well, Habakkuk prepares himself. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He makes this determination by faith that he's going to do this. That when the desolations come, he's going to rejoice in the Lord. He's going to take joy in the God of his salvation. God, as you've heard, is enough. We sing this sometimes in our songs. God is enough. God is enough. As you've gone through the past year, has that been your truth? Has God been enough for you? Is he to whom you've turned? Have you prayed more this past year? Have you found yourself crying out to God more? Have you been more sensitive to your own failings and sins? Have you found a renewed desire to be with God's people? If not, let's get ready. Let's, let's get ourselves spiritually ready. I, verse 18, this whole section, in fact, it's dealing with a major crisis. This is, this is as bad as it gets on earth. He's dealing with a, like, red level the, the, all the sirens have gone off. This is it. This is apocalyptic. And so God is enough for that. But I also want to say this section is good enough for you for all your minor stuff too. This is how we should live. The righteous live by faith. This is what faith looks like. And so we should have the faith to try to live like this in all of our daily stuff. What do I mean minor crises? I mean all of the minor disturbances during your week where you emotionally, psychologically get bent. 
It might be somebody displeased with you at work. You messed up at work or maybe you didn't mess up at work. Maybe you put in for vacation when somebody else had put in for vacation and you get it so they can't. And they're upset with you and that causes you some minor crisis. Somebody doesn't like you. And it's not your fault. What do you do then? Well, you take joy in the Lord. You rejoice in the God of your salvation. It could be a child who said something to you as a parent that's unflattering. You know, it's really hard as a parent when you're out of fellowship with your child and they dislike you, which may mean that you're being a good parent. It's really difficult. What do you do then when your child has sinned against you and said something awful to you? Well, you rejoice in the Lord. You take joy in the God of your salvation. Could be car trouble, illness, disappointment at church. We had to sing that song again. What are you going to do in all of these day in, day out, more minor troubles that really do trouble you? The righteous live by faith. What does that faith look like? It looks like you saying, I will rejoice, Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So the righteous live by faith. You respond to life by faith. That response of faith looks like taking joy in God. And I want to try to answer some question for you like, okay, how? How do I do this? How do I actually live verse 18 of faith? How do I do it? Let me try to give you a few ways that I, I hope will be helpful to you. I think the first and maybe most important truth I want to communicate to you this morning is that verse 18 is possible. What do I mean there? I mean, verse 18 isn't just for elite Christians like me. Because everybody thinks the pastor's elite, right? And he is, if you ask him. Um, it's for regular Christians. It's for Christians like me and like you. It's meant for males and females, young and old. It's meant for you and everything that you'll enter into your life. We, the Apostle Peter said that what the prophets wrote beforehand wasn't necessarily meant for them, but for you. This too. Habakkuk, Habakkuk <laughs> is serving you as an example of a normal Christian. This is normal Christianity here, brothers and sisters. God means to give this to you. This is possible to take, to rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of your salvation. Do you believe that? That this is for you? I know that you believe that this could be true, but do you believe that this is for you? That this just isn't for others, but for you? 
to actually, in the midst of minor and major crises, to experience in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, joy in the Lord. That this is possible for you. It is. Second, so you have to embrace that, to tell you the truth. You won't get it, likely, unless you think it's for you. So you have to have the faith to respond to this and say, God, this is for me. I want it. It'll probably motivate you to prayer, to motivate you to some action. Second, what I want to communicate to you is that this gives you some purpose. I mean that in two senses. First, this joy in the Lord is the purpose for which God has made all things, has redeemed you to himself, and does whatever he does in your life. God is a God of intent. He wills and plans and does whatever he wills and plans. And it is always for the purpose of his people finding joy in him. As paradoxical as it might seem, the reason that God is bringing Babylon to Judah to judge them is so that they might learn to take joy in him. He intends to humble you that you might learn to seek him and find joy in him. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That doesn't mean that you'll never have any lack in your life. It means that even when you have great lack in your life, you don't lack anything because God is your shepherd. And that when he brings you into seasons of despair and sorrow and desolation, He means to teach you that he's enough. That's the purpose for which he does everything. Which means then it gives you purpose for whatever you do. Our overarching purpose in our life should be to seek joy in God. When I was in seminary, I've told you this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. And I'm not even 70 yet. I am aware that I'm retelling it. That's for you, Jim, right there. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Hafeman walked into New Testament theology or theology of the New Testament. He had a binder this thick. He was the most unorganized man I ever said, and he was the most impactful seminary prof I had. And he flipped open his big thick binder and said, God created all things for his glory. God created you to find joy in him. And those two things are one. That the way that God gets the most glory is when you enjoy him the most. And it kind of revolutionized my brain and how I viewed the world. That God, as Piper says it, is most glorified in you and you're most satisfied in him. And so the way that Habakkuk can glorify God is by enjoying him here. That's it. That's the essence of faith. And hopefully you as a Christian want to do one thing above all others and it's bring God glory. And now you're learning that the way that you can bring God the most glory is by just enjoying him. And Paul says in Philippians 4 that whether I have a lot 
or whether I have a little, whether I'm raised up or whether I'm brought low, I can be content in any situation because I have Christ. And that's the way to glorify God. That if the sap's really flowing and you're making gallons of syrup, you can rejoice in the Lord. Or if it's not, you can rejoice in the Lord. That if you do go and get a biopsy and it comes out clear, you can rejoice in the Lord. And if it comes out that you have fourth stage grade cancer, it doesn't look good and you're going to go through a lot of difficulty, you can rejoice in the Lord. And that's the way that you glorify him. That when you're walking hand in hand with your spouse and you're happy and you're getting along and the birds are singing and the sun is shining and you can do no wrong, that you can rejoice in the Lord. And that when your spouse, you can feel it, the ice. And you're wondering, what in the heck did I do wrong? You can rejoice in the Lord. And that is the best way to glorify him, that you enjoy him. That's, that's the purpose. Notice also Habakkuk's language here, how willful he is, determined. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is faith. The righteous shall live by faith, and you by faith determine by God's grace, depending on the Holy Spirit's power, that you are determined to have joy in the Lord. One of the sweetest things that we as parents too often find irritating is when your young child grabs on, mommy, 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 right? And they are just not going to stop until they get you. <laughs> hey, leave me alone. Right. Unfortunately, dads don't get that as much. They can. Because your daughter or your son isn't going to let go until they get you. That's what Habakkuk's doing here. He is going to delight himself in God. He is going to seek and pursue and press on and fight and pray and sing and meet with God's people until he gets it, till he breaks through to it. It's a willful choice. It's a conscious choice. It does depend on God's power and grace. It does depend on work and effort. But it is a matter of our will. That you have to grab hold of yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. As the psalmist often does. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you troubled in you? Hope in God. You've got to talk to yourself. You've got to preach to yourself. You've got to get hold of yourself. Yes, you will complain. Yes, you will cry. That's all good. We, we need to weep. We need to sorrow. We need to vent. We need to shake our fist at God like Habakkuk does. 
And then we have to get hold of ourselves by faith and say, I will find joy in God. This is why I'm here. This is what this trial is for. I'm going after that. That's what Habakkuk's doing. How? Let me ask you. When have been the times in your life, what activities have you been doing when you have actually experienced joy in God? When you have just kind of lost sight of other things and in your soul, in your heart, in your mind, you have this sense of, (laughs) wow. It's amazing, really. The feeling of that, the wonder of that, the sense of joy in him. When have those times happened for you? It's not always, it's not, but when, what have you been doing when you've had those? I've asked myself that this week. Singing, reading scripture, other good books. There's sometimes at night where I have to be careful that I'm read because it gets me so excited and fired up that I can't sleep. That sound weird to you? How about when you've engaged in one of those sweet conversations with somebody that you didn't know was going to go this direction, you end up just talking about the Lord, and it doesn't happen very often, but it's just one of those moments, and it's just joyful. Maybe it's when you've done something good for somebody else. Maybe listening to a sermon. Maybe celebrating the Lord's Supper. Maybe in nature. You're out for a paddle or for a walk or driving, and you see the sun going down, and at times of feasting have been for me. When together with those that I love and we have the table full and there's a racket, a din, silverware is clanking and it's just joy coming from God. It, it has been in my life at times of deepest sorrow where there's like nothing left to do but sob. And yet in there, there's just a turning to God and there's joy. Sometimes it just comes out of the blue. It's not always clean. It almost always includes other people. Sometimes not. It's not pretty. It's not mechanical. You can't do the right things all the right time and always get the same result. It depends on God's grace. But this is discipleship, brothers and sisters. This is what we are learning, how to find joy in God how to fight for joy in God by doing these activities by faith, grabbing hold of God until we get it. Which just means that you are doing what should be normal as a Christian, that you see God as the pearl of greatest price. And you'd be willing to lose all as long as you have him. That at God's right hand, you actually believe there are pledged people forevermore. And so that's where you want to be. That you are glad when people say, let us go unto the house of the Lord. Because you know in God's presence there is fullness of joy. And that's what you want. And so what keeps you from this? What's, what are the obstacles? Is it that you just don't think it's possible? You just don't really ever seek it? You've settled for a dull Christianity. You do find joy in other things, but rarely in God. Seek it. What, what's keeping you from it? We could have a list here too, but I think one of the main things is just pride. 
We're so focused on self. And often, uh, could be a low estimation of yourself, but often a high estimation that you just don't need him. You just don't need him. You lack humility. You lack gratitude. You just don't see anything to be grateful for because you're kind of the source of it all anyways. And so, so focused on yourself, not being able to get outside of yourself, thinking maybe that God owes you and that whenever he brings loss in your life, you can't stand it because how dare he? And so pride, I think, is the number one reason that keeps us from this. This spiritual disease of deserving and demanding. Living in your head. Nursing grudges. And let me close with this. Verse 19, verse 17, 18, and 19 and really all of chapter 3, but especially to the end, it's a song. At the end, to the choir master or to the chief musician, and then with stringed instruments there, the meaning of that last word is uncertain. It's a musical annotation that we see in the Psalms from time to time. It may be a melody or a tune that he's saying you should sing this to. Or maybe it's the instrumentation he means to accompany. It's meant to be sung. 17, 18, 19. It's meant to be sung. And notice the connection between singing and being lifted up. Verse 19. God, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. If you like watching those nature programs, sometimes the most fun ones of those mountain goats who I don't know how they walk on sheer cliffs of rubble up. That's the kind of terrain the psalmist has envisioned. That's the kind of world he's walking on. And God allows his feet to walk to the top. And the connection there is that's what singing does for you. Sing this. This is what God will do for you. He'll bring you over the rubble, the impassable, the the, the uh, wilderness, he'll bring you up there. So there is a connection between singing and joy in God. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs encouraging one another. It's meant to be done as a congregation. This was a song written to be sung together as God's people. And we're practicing right now in times that are still pretty good for when they aren't good at all. We're practicing now when we can gather without any fear of being shut down or anything like that. We can do this free. We can live stream it. Nobody's saying boo to us in preparation for a time when we can't. We're learning to sing. And so parents, don't neglect singing in your homes. It's one of the things I love about the Lord of the Rings. It's full of singing. Make your homes hobbit homes where you sing. Men, I know we've talked about this. I believe Keith has been talking individually to some of you. 
I'm grateful for that work. Brothers, you got to sing. It's connected to your joy in the Lord. Sisters, same with you. Same with you, young and old, male and female, all of us. We sing for joy in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I don't want this to be cheap. I don't want this to be the kind of Christianity that we always say but never experience, and it's just kind of the pretentious kind. Keep us from that now. Keep us from just hearing this as a platitude. Yes, Christians enjoy the Lord. God, God, please instead help us in, in our lives, in our real lives, right now and this afternoon and tomorrow morning and Wednesday evening and Friday when we're tired. Help us to live this, to give feet to it, to realize that the best way to glorify you is to enjoy you and to do that willfully by your grace. And so God, help us now, please, by your Holy Spirit, bring this home to us with power that we, in a way that we didn't experience before. We can't do it apart from you. We don't want to attempt it apart from you. And so God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us in our neglect of this. Turn us towards it. Have mercy on us in our weakness and our um, apathy. Have mercy on us in our fear. God, please turn us towards this because there's nothing better for us than to enjoy you. And so God, please do that which is best for us, which is to do whatever you need to in our lives to teach us to take joy in you, the God of our salvation. And please start now for us, God. We're calling on you, even now. Give us faith for this, in Jesus' name, amen.